Man, well, it's good to be back here with you guys. Um, yeah, two weeks, it seems like an eternity to be gone from home, you know? It's just weird. But uh, anyway, I'm glad to be back. Uh, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and it's page 841, and the Bible's there in the chairs. <clears throat> you, uh, you don't have to be a Christian very long before... Maybe you hear or you see or, or, or even read something about the power of faith. Have you guys heard about the power of faith? I mean, after all, Jesus says that faith can move mountains. That if you believe, you can be made well. And, and your prayers, you know, whatever you ask in faith, if you believe, you will receive them. If only you have faith. And so we can read these things or we can hear these things or we can see these things and we can, can begin to sort of associate Faith as the prerequisite for power. If I have faith, then I can have power. If I have enough faith, then I can use this power as a means to get what I want. Right? So often this is abused this way. And though there is clearly power in faith, power for transformation, let's face it, I've never literally seen anyone by faith move a mountain. Jesus never moved a mountain by faith, right? He didn't even give us that example. Or I've never seen anyone get their prayers answered in just the way they prayed them all the time, though they faithfully prayed time and time again. Have you? No. It's never gone exactly the way that they have chosen. And I don't think that one's personal trust in Jesus gives them the ability to heal themselves. That power exists outside of them. But so often these statements of Jesus are used to manipulate. I use faith to manipulate my circumstances to get what I want. But as you see throughout Mark, the faith that that we've seen there represented in this gospel is anything but powerful. So far we've seen faith mentioned three times and it's not been pleasant. In in Mark chapter 2, you've got these four men. And they hear that Jesus can heal, and so they decide they're going to take their paralytic friend, put him on a bed, they're going to take him to Jesus, they get there to the house where he is, they can't get in, and so by faith they decide that they're going to go up and get on the roof, tear a hole in the roof, destroying personal property, in order to lower their friend down to Jesus, right? And in chapter 2, verse 5, it says that Jesus looked up at them, and he saw their faith, and then he did what? He looked down and he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. But let's face it, that's not why they were there. They were there because, though though they were active, you know, they they were taking action on the things they believed, and, and they were zealous, and they wouldn't stop at anything. They only believed that Jesus was a healer. Or at best, they were there at the synagogue, in the circumstance before where they saw that Jesus spoke with authority, not like the, the religious leaders of the day. At best, Jesus was a healer that had some type of, of authority to teach. But they didn't know who he was. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom to forgive the sins of many, to restore them to a perfect relationship with God. When their friend, when he said that, you're, you're, to his, their friend, that your sins are forgiven, they didn't just haul him back up because job's done, right? No, they wanted him to be healed. That's why they were there. So there's little power in that faith that we see. They still have no idea who he is. Well, what about the disciples? 
the disciples, they show extraordinary faith, right? They, I mean, they follow Jesus. I mean, think about chapter 4 of all the faith that they exemplified at that, as that storm raged around them and was about to sink the boat. They showed a lot of faith right there as they pleaded for their lives. Help us! What are we going to do? Have you, have you sent us out here to destroy us? No. There's, no. there's no faith there either. Jesus gets up. He speaks three words. The storm is calm. And then he turns to them and he says, are you, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We saw a couple weeks ago, the last time that I was here, I preached on uh, the faith that Jesus commends in that the woman with the, the hemorrhage uh, that, that continued to bleed. And, and we see that Jesus, yes, he says to her, yeah, your faith has made you well, right? But what, what we saw was that her faith was ignorant. Her faith was selfish. Her faith was desperate. Her faith was superstitious. She only wanted from Jesus a cure for her ailment. She didn't want to be known. She, she just wanted to go and touch his garment and step back into oblivion and, and, and not be known to anybody. But the faith that Jesus commends is the faith that he provides as he calls her out. He does a work in her so that she realizes who he is. And that faith that he says has made her well was the faith that he has given her. It's not her own faith. It's him. So, so much for this power of faith that we've seen in Mark so far. But what we have seen time and time and time again as we've gone through Mark is a power, a great power that has affected a multitude of people, that has affected that polyplethora of people who have followed Jesus, these thousands of people who are there to kind of to see what he's going to do. And that's the power of unbelief. It's the power of Unbelief. Time after time after time, these people, they see Jesus. They hear His voice. They dine with Him. They touch Him. They are with Him. They marvel as He teaches with authority. They are surprised and amazed by His, his wisdom. They marvel and, and, and are shocked by all these powerful signs and wonders that He is doing. But yet they still persist in unbelief. They still don't follow Him. They still don't want Him. They still don't love Him. They still choose to reject Him. Even the disciples don't have a true informed faith. They still wonder, who is this that even the waves obey Him? And they're scolded time and time again for their lack of faith. Even after Jesus rose from the grave, He scolds them. Now, the power at work that we see in Mark is the power of unbelief, the power to reject Jesus, the power to misunderstand Jesus' nature, His character, His purposes, the power to condemn ourselves to hell. That's the power that we see at work. As John MacArthur writes, it was unbelief that brought a curse on all humanity. It was unbelief that broke up the fountains of the deep and brought down rain from heaven that drowned the entire human race, save eight. And it is unbelief in the Son of God that catapults people into eternal hell. Unbelief activates divine wrath. Unbelief 
activates divine judgment. It is a force. It is a power, this unbelief. And what we see here today is that those who knew Jesus, those who were closest to him, his neighbors, his relatives, and even his own household, his mother, brothers, and sisters are under the power of unbelief. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, page 841. It says, Jesus went away from there, uh, around the Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What wisdom was given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The first truth that we see in this passage is that these people know and marvel at Jesus. We learned back in chapter 1 that Jesus' hometown was Nazareth. We saw that in verse 9 and again in verse 24. And so what we see here in verse 1 is that Jesus leaves this ministry that he has near the town of Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee, and he goes about 25 miles southwest to his hometown of Nazareth. He leaves that huge crowd, that, that multitude that thronged around him behind, and he takes only his disciples with him. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus picks up his former ministry practice, a practice that he had avoided because of the, the hostility that he was facing with the religious leaders. He's now back in the synagogue, and he's preaching from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself. This is the second, more than likely the second time that Jesus has taught in his own home synagogue, in the, the religious place of worship and instruction for the Jews of that day. The first was recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And if you know that account, you know that that did not go well. He was not well received. Uh, in Luke, basically, Jesus got up. He was, he was asked to read. They handed him a scroll to the passage that they wanted to read. But Jesus unrolls it. He goes to another passage to Isaiah 61 that talks about the coming Messiah and how he would proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, liberty to the oppressed, the, the year of the Lord's favor, that, that the, the blind would recover their sight, all these wonderful truths. And then he rolls the scroll back up and he hands it to the guy and he basically says, you know what? I'm that guy. I'm that coming Messiah. That scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. And for a brief moment, it was well received. They saw those words as gracious. But quickly they turned on Jesus. Because he wouldn't do what they wanted him to. They wanted to see these miracles at work. And he refused to do it. And so what did they do? They got mad. Their wrath burned against him. And they took him out and they tried to throw him off a cliff. But by the grace of God, he was able to walk through. So his first experience did not go well. But that was then. 
from there, Jesus left and he began his ministry throughout Galilee. And he's been gone for a while, maybe a year, maybe two. We don't exactly know at this time. And, and all these rumors have begun to spread about Jesus' ministry, how, how he has God-given authority to teach, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, but with real True authority. They've heard all these accounts of how Jesus has healed the sick. He has, he has caused the lame to walk again. He's healed the diseased. He's cast out demon after demon after demon. Two thousand or more in one man. They've heard all these amazing things. They've heard about how Jesus uh, claimed to have the authority to forgive sin and then proves it by healing this paralytic man. All these things have happened. They've even heard that Jesus has calmed a storm. And then he caused a little girl to rise from the grave. And so the people of Nazareth, more than likely, they're beginning to wonder, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to this. Maybe Jesus was right when he was saying that Isaiah 61 applies to himself. Maybe we should give him a second chance. Maybe we should listen to him. So Jesus comes back. <clears throat> he returns to his hometown to the people that he used to build furniture for, the people that knew his family, that knew his, his mother, his brothers and sisters, to the people who in their wrath almost killed him. You know, when uh, Jesus talks about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, here we see that Jesus doesn't just talk about it, he actually lives it. He doesn't call us to do anything that he himself has not done. He gives them a second chance. And it's clear from verse 3 that they know Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. He fixed their stuff. Jesus was the guy that made that table that we eat at every night at dinner. They still hung out with his mom, the perpetual virgin. I, I mean, and his brothers and sisters. Nazareth is not a large city, okay? It's a small town. It's like the, the town that I grew up in, Novinger, Missouri. It's like Pasodum, Illinois, right? Every, if you've grown up in a small town, you know that everybody knows everybody. Small towns always remember. Small towns never forget, all right? I just went home last weekend, and I saw people that I hadn't seen in like 20 years. And it was crazy. They still knew me, even though I'm, I'm much more fit than I was back then and got facial hair but um anyway yeah uh they know jesus they remember him not only did they know him but verse 2 says that many were just astounded they were amazed and astonished by his his teaching it reads that on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And they were amazed at his teaching. They were overwhelmed by his wisdom. They were literally blown away by the mighty works that he had done. I mean, that's the literal translation for this word astonished. They were blown away. They were completely shocked by his teaching, his wisdom, and his mighty works. But then again, Initially, they were that first time that Jesus taught in his hometown. If you read uh, Luke 4, verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. 
That was until Jesus refused to perform tricks for them to display His mighty power. When He wouldn't do what they want. When they wouldn't show them His power. He basically told them, listen, not everybody gets healed. Not everybody is restored. And He uses two Old Testament examples of of Elijah and the widow and Elisha and Naaman. And He said, listen, these are the only two people that they healed. Right? These are the only two people they took care of. Everybody else was left out. And they did not like it. They burned with wrath. And so they took him outside and got ready to throw him down the hill. Right? That's what they were ready to do. That was the the level of their amazement. And so, yes, they, they marvel at him. This time, the second time. Maybe they get it this time, right? No. They don't believe. They still aren't willing to follow him. Knowing Jesus and marveling at Jesus doesn't necessarily result in believing and following Jesus. We've seen this over and over and over again. The crowds, time and time again, have marveled at what Jesus can do. They've been really entertained and delighted and even healed by what He's done. But they're not believing. They're not following. And it's the same here in Nazareth. They're astonished by what He says and by what He does, but they're not willing to follow after Him. They don't want Him. They only want what He can do for them. Either to entertain or to heal. And so lest we, we scoff at the unbelief that we see in these Nazarenes, or, or lest we just kind of laugh and, and sort of chide at the unbelief that we see in the crowd, we need to remember one thing, that we are just like them. We have that same sense of unbelief. The same resistance and unwilling to follow Him. Yeah, we might know a lot about Jesus. We might even marvel at the things that we read about Jesus, but not follow after Him. We can be blown away by the things that He says and does, but not truly follow Jesus. You see, those that know about and marvel at Jesus, second, can still reject Him. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not arguing that someone can truly know and marvel at Jesus and then reject Him, as in lose their salvation. Okay, That's not what I'm arguing for. I, I don't believe it's biblically supportive that, that someone can, walk, can have true faith and then walk away from it. I, I, don't, I don't think that's possible. Um, no, I'm talking about how people can know a lot about Jesus. And they can seem to be very, very near to Jesus, right? And at times they can even have very powerful mental and emotional and volitional experiences where they marvel at Jesus, but they are still unbelievers that continue in their rejection of Jesus. The amazement of Jesus' hometown and that of the crowd that we have seen before is superficial. We've just seen that in Luke 4, and we see it here again in, in, in Mark chapter 6. Though for a moment they were blown away by Jesus' teaching, by His wisdom, by His mighty works, their unbelief is shown in their response, in the things that they do. Their unbelieving response actually teaches us a lot about the nature of unbelief. First, um, unbelief naturally um, questions the obvious conclusions, Right? Though they could clearly see that Jesus had the God-given ability to teach and to perform miracles, that, that His wisdom far surpassed the most educated religious leaders of the day, and they marveled at it, they were still unwilling to attribute the things that they saw and heard, 
to the natural conclusion that, that this is God-given. This is from God. Look at what they said. Yeah, I mean, did he have mind-blowing teaching? Yeah, but they said, well, that can't be from God, so where did it come from? Where did this man get this th- these things? Does this guy have superhuman strength Well, or superhuman wisdom? Well, is that really wisdom, and who gave it to him? Are all these mighty works done by his hands? Yes, but how is that possible? How could that happen? What kind of trickery is this? What sort of things did, did this carpenter concoct in his wood shop, spending all those years there? I mean, this, this can't possibly be supernatural. This can't possibly be from God. Though the obvious conclusion was that Jesus' teaching, wisdom, and power were from God, the unbeliever will continue to question and to doubt the obvious. They will continue to speculate and come to their own conclusions about what is clear and apparent. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this in unbelievers that you've engaged, right? Hopefully you're out there, you're sharing your faith, and sometimes you go and it doesn't matter what kind of proofs you give, how many proofs you give, it doesn't matter how reasonable and logical your argumentation is, they still reject it. Even though the obvious conclusion is that this is from God. And they persist in their unbelief. And that should be expected. Because let's face it, guys, if here in Nazareth, these people are looking at Jesus, they are hearing His words, they are seeing His signs and wonders done among them, they are hearing this, this God-given wisdom, and they're still coming to the wrong conclusions, then you need to face the reality that all the proofs in the world and all the philosophical and logical arguments you can give, all the apologetics that you can provide, cannot overcome unbelief. They will not. Apologetics are for weak Christians. They're not for unbelievers. They reject, these people reject even what the demons have recognized. I. Howard Marshall once wrote that their unbelief lies not in the failure to perceive the quality of Jesus' words or the reality of his miracles. It lies in their refusal to admit the true source of this wisdom and power and to accept the unique identity of the one who reveals them. Friends, only the Holy Spirit working through the gospel can bring about faith in the hearts of the unbelieving, enabling them to see that these things are from God and that Jesus is His one and only Son. The only solution, the only answer to unbelief is the power of the Spirit working through the gospel. That's it. So apologetics are good and helpful, I think, for the church but are not going to convince the unbeliever. A second characteristic of unbelief that we see in the people of Nazareth is that they focus on the wrong things. All right? They did this by turning their attention to irrelevant details about Jesus' life. And they did it by being just unable to overcome their expectations of who or what the Messiah would be like. Look again at verse 3. They said... Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are his sisters not here with us? I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Really? How does that, 
How does that verify or, or, or deny the very things that they have heard and seen? It does nothing. Unless, of course, you expect the Messiah to be somebody else, somebody grand, somebody great. You expect a kingly figure or a warrior or some great priest or some old wise man, somebody of stature. You somebody that's grand, not somebody that's ordinary, not somebody that's commonplace, not somebody that grew up in my hometown. Couldn't possibly be him. It doesn't matter who his mother is or who her kids are. And by the way, since we're, we're focusing on all the wrong things here, right? The, the text supports the fact that these are Mary's children, not Joseph's children from a previous marriage. Mary is not a perpetual virgin, okay? She had other kids, right? But that's all I'm going to say. <clears throat> but the unbelieving mind will focus on irrelevant details, or it will come with presuppositions or assumptions of what is true and what can't possibly be true. The un- they are unwilling to let God be God. They are unwilling, they are reluctant to... to just observe and, and follow God's will, God's plan. They want it to be their way. They want God to bow down and submit to their plan, their understanding, their level of maturity. He must operate in the way that I choose for him to. For them, the Son of God could not be a carpenter from their hometown. He just couldn't be. And we see this in unbelievers today who are willing to focus Maybe on the moral teachings of Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to submit to the fact that Jesus was a great moral teacher that died on the cross. But if you think that you're going to convince me that Jesus died for my sin and that he rose from the grave, you are crazy. That can't possibly be true. You see what they're doing? They're coming with presuppositions that this is not true. They're not willing to let God say what God says and God be God. Right? They're not willing to submit themselves to them. They're coming as their own gods. In rebellion against him. And we do this all the time. Maybe it's not by focusing on science as our, 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 our major worldview. Maybe it's, our unbelief is shown in that we just focus on the things of this world. We do it all the time. Our relationships, our jobs, our success, you, you name it. But we don't give thought to who this is and who I should, how I should live in light of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. A third characteristic of unbelievers is that they will take offense to the message and the messenger. Okay? Though they were blown away by Jesus' teaching, by his wisdom, by his, his clear evidenced power, they, they turned around and they asked, where did this man get these things? Well, this is a derogatory way of saying it. They are showing their disdain. They're basically saying, where did this jerk get these things? Who is this guy? He's just some carpenter. How could he say that? You could hear the disdain. They also call him the son of Mary instead of the son of Joseph like they did in Luke chapter 4. Something that you almost never do unless, because they live in a small town, rumors have flown about this illegitimate son of Mary. They're basically calling him a mongrel. Or a bass, you fill in the rest. Alright? 
And in verse 3, it says that they took offense at him. They were scandalized by him. Once again, they were filled with wrath by what Jesus has said to them. They hate his message, and as a result, they turn their disdain towards him. An unbeliever at times will attack both the message and the messenger. I mean, church history has shown this over and over and over again, and we should expect this. In fact, before Jesus died, he told his disciples in John 15, 18 through 20, that the world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Friends, unbelievers will question the obvious conclusions. They will focus on the wrong things and they will attack both the message and the messenger. And if they did it with Jesus, they will do it with you. If they rejected him, they will reject you. Now, I know that it's sometimes commonplace for people to say, well, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the message, right? But the Bible, for the... It always talks about how the message is inseparable from the messenger. And those, there's an element of truth to this. Well, they might still be willing to be your friend or whatever, even though they don't accept the message. The reality is, if they reject Christ, and you identify yourself with Christ, then they reject you. It can be no other way. And that's part of the cost of discipleship that you have to weigh. If you're going to follow Him, you don't live... For the praise of men. But you live to follow Christ. So those who know about and marvel at Jesus, they can still reject him. Third, resulting in dishonoring, the suppressing, and the astonishment of Christ. The power of unbelief results in Christ being dishonored. In his truth and his power being suppressed. And in his marveling, at their hard-heartedness. And you might look at that and be like, so what? But for us, that, that ought to mean everything. Instead of giving him the admiration that even a prophet deserves, though he is far more than a prophet, Jesus says in verse 4 that a prophet is, is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Though he is far more than a prophet, Jesus knew that he was speaking as a prophet, that he was declaring the very words of God. And though the people marveled at what he said, they did not honor him. They did not love him. They did not want him. The closest to him still rejected him. This passage points to an ultimate rejection at Jerusalem, an ultimate rejection by the Israelites. The scandal of the cross would be too great an offense for them. They could not believe that, that God's Messiah, this great and grand figure that was going to deliver them, that was going to redeem them, could possibly come as a carpenter from Nazareth, only to die a humiliating and excruciating death on a cross, to unbelievably be raised from the dead three days later, and that would somehow bring redemption? That would somehow bring deliverance? They couldn't fathom that. And so the cross and the resurrection of Jesus became a stumbling block and a rock of offense to the people. But what struck me was Mark's addition of among his relatives 
and in his own household. This has to include Mary, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters. Remember back in chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, they came to Capernaum to do what? To get Jesus because they thought that he was out of his mind. They thought that this prophet has gone crazy. They thought that the Son of God was a maniac. And so they came to seize him and to take him back home because he was going to get himself killed. And so I think that this verse, along with chapter 3, is another indication that at this point, at this point, Jesus' family still reject his claims. They still don't know who he is. They still don't believe that he's the Son of God. They still don't believe that he came to die, to offer his life as a sacrifice upon the cross for sin. They still aren't willing to follow him. And though Mary, in some sense, treasured these things up in her heart, she was still wrestling with the prophecy that Simeon gave that Jesus' ministry would divide the people. She's still warring with what her expectations of the Messiah would be. And she's not getting it at this point. She's not willing to follow him. She's still walking in unbelief. But fortunately, we know from passages like Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that this is not the end of the story. Eventually, Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters would believe. They would. We have two letters in our New Testament written by Jesus' brothers. Praise the Lord. But for now, they continue to dishonor him. They continue to reject him, like his hometown. Dishonoring may not seem like a big deal to you, because let's face it, honor is, is not really valued in our culture today. But as, if we're Christians, if we follow Christ, this is a huge deal. This is tremendous. One of our biggest concerns about the power of unbelief ought to come from our desire to see Christ given the glory that is due His name. His name is above all names. And true faith is evidenced in a desire to honor Christ and to see Him glorified. That's how we express our faith. Unbelief honors and glorifies things that are less than Christ. Unbelief dishonors Christ because all glory and honor is due to His name and His name alone. I mean, this is why Paul prays for the Thessalonians. To this end, we always pray that for you that God may make you worthy of His calling and that He may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith honors Christ. Unbelief dishonors Christ. And we ought to be really concerned about this. We ought to be asking ourselves, you know what, am I honoring Christ? Am I glorifying Christ with my life? In everything that I do? Or am I thinking that, I'm doing good enough just because I show up here on Sunday morning and I sing a couple of songs and I listen to a long-winded guy preach a, a really long sermon. Right? Are you finding glory and honor in other things? In your relationship? Oh, I'm about to be married. I've got a lot of stuff to do here and I'm all excited about that. Or, or, you know, I've got this job and it's really weighing me down and that's 
gets on my focus or or you name it. Not only does unbelief dishonor Christ, but it also suppresses Christ. Now again, I, I have to be careful here because I'm not suggesting that unbelief hinders Jesus' ability or that Jesus needs faith in order to display His power. Alright? I want to be clear. Jesus' power is not dependent upon faith. Now right now you might be asking, well look at verse 5. What does verse 5 say? Verse 5 says that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. Isn't this because they didn't honor Him? And because Jesus marveled at their unbelief? Isn't, isn't this saying that faith is a prerequisite for power? I mean, isn't that what, what, what's going on? After all, Jesus could do no mighty work there. Now, a quick reading would, would cause you to come to that conclusion. But not if you're reading in context. Not if you're thinking about all that Christ has done throughout the Gospel of Mark. For example, back in chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, who was believing there that enabled Jesus to have the power to speak three words and that storm was completely calm? It's my recollection that all the disciples were peeing their pants, right? I mean, they were. There's no faith there. There's no power of faith evidence there. Later on in this chapter, we're going to read about the feeding of the 5,000. Who there was believing that Jesus could actually take five loaves and two small fish and break them and feed 5,000 men? No one. But yet Jesus' power was unhindered. And immediately following that, whose faith enabled Jesus to walk on water? No one even knew that He was doing it. And when they saw him out there, they thought he was a ghost and they freaked out. There's no faith there, but yet Jesus' power remains unhindered, unstifled. Now Jesus, uh, and and not to mention that here in this passage, that in verse 2, the people knew that he had already performed signs and wonders. Right? And in verse 6, despite their unbelief, he still heals a few sick people. Right? Right? So Mark doesn't mean that unbelief of the Nazarenes prevented Jesus from being able to do these mighty works. Jesus' power does not need faith. Faith does not necessarily result in power. No, what's happening here is that the people have come to a conclusion on Jesus. They're thinking, the carpenter's gone mad. He's a crazy man. And so they got up and they left. They went inside their houses and they closed their door and they refused to come out to Him. They wouldn't bring out their sick. They wouldn't bring out their lame. They wouldn't bring out those who were demon-possessed so that He might heal and restore and, and deliver them. They rejected Him in their unbelief. And though they had marveled at His teaching, His wisdom and power, just moments before, now they are suppressing this truth, the truth that was so evident that they'd seen and heard in unbelief. They harden their hearts against Him by questioning those obvious conclusions, by focusing on all the wrong things, and by taking offense at the message in the messenger. And so Jesus knows that miracles will not convince the hard-hearted. He will, they will not convince the unbeliever who has already made up their minds. And so Jesus doesn't perform them. And in doing that, the revelatory power of who He is was not displayed. Instead of staying and continuing to teach and to perform these miracles, Jesus basically brushes the dust off of His feet and He moves on. He goes on to other villages teaching. 
What's happening here is the same thing that Paul speaks about in Romans 1, 18-21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For what can be known about, whoops, sorry, for his invisible attributes, namely his divine power and his eternal nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The people of Nazareth had suppressed Christ, not by stifling his power because of their unbelief, but in hardening their hearts against the truth of who he is, which he has displayed in his wisdom, in his power, and in his teaching. And they denied others the opportunity to see and to hear the true nature of Christ, thus suppressing him. In unbelief, dishonors Christ, it suppresses Christ, and finally it astonishes Christ. Now, I was struck by verse 6, where it says that he marveled at their unbelief. Jesus doesn't marvel. He only does it a handful of times. The faith of centurion and here. And maybe this is Jesus speaking out of his humanity. That he was somehow saddened that his neighbors and friends and relatives and even his own household rejected him. I mean, let's face it. We as humans, we want the people that are closest to us to be on our side, don't we? Right? We want them to be with us. And so maybe that's what was going on here. But I actually think that there's more than that. I think that what we see here is that Jesus, the Son of God, amazed by their hard-heartedness, amazed by the power of unbelief in mankind. That regardless of the teaching, regardless of the wisdom, regardless of the mighty works, they will not believe Him. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, those who have hardened their hearts against Him. Though judgment and is no doubt part of God's sovereign plan, Scripture indicates that God is saddened by the persistence of unbelief in humanity. The power of unbelief is just absolutely amazing. James Edwards writes, What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness and its propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe Him. The greatest problem in the world, and herein lies the divine judgment of humanity. He goes on to say that humanity wants a spectacular sign or like the devil, a great display of divine power. But it does not want God to come and it, as a human being like one of us. The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe in Him. The servant king uh, the sermon image of the sun is too prosaic to garner credulity. And I realize those are big words. That means basically that Jesus was too commonplace in their minds to possibly be the Son of God. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold Him. Too closely with the town of Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus the Son of God. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. Friends, the power of unbelief is amazing. I mean, regardless of how creation all around us points 
to Creator. We reject it. Regardless of how our conscience bears witness to the fact that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and though we are flawed, it points to a greater understanding of a good, holy, righteous, perfect Creator God, yet we still deny it. And though we may ask ourselves a thousand times why we are here, what's our purpose in life, we will not give glory to God. And even if we get to the point that we recognize that we've sinned, even when we realize that we are living in rebellion against this Creator God, we refuse to accept the way that He has provided salvation. Either we don't want it that way, or we want to do it ourselves. I'm not willing to follow a God who became flesh and lived as a carpenter in Nazareth only to die a humiliating death on a cross. I'm not willing to believe that He rose from the grave. He is not my Savior and He will not be my Lord. That's the power of unbelief. It's plaguing us. It doesn't just exist out there. It exists right here. In this room. Unbelief still plaguing our hearts. How do I know this? Would you say that every aspect of your life is lived to the glory and honor of Christ? That in everything you do, you honor Him? You give Him glory? You constantly reminded of His name? Or do you give glory and honor to yourself or something else? Would you say that your life is lived as an expression, an outward display of the praise and glory of Christ in all things? Or do you worship something else? Do you suppress the truth of Christ in doubt, questioning the obvious, and focusing on other things, in being offended at the message in the messenger, or you live in fear to tell others about it? Would you say that your life is lived perfectly so that God is glorified, God is honored, God is pleased with your life? Or is God astonished at the unbelief that still resides in your heart? Friends, unbelief plagues us. It's still there. We still have indwelling sin. It's still attacked. And we've got to recognize this. Because if we don't recognize this, we won't fight against it. And if we don't fight against it, it will overcome us. It will. You kill sin or it kills you. There's no other way about it. You kill unbelief or it kills you. It doesn't matter how long you're a Christian. You're not safe. You continue to strive. You continue to pursue. You continue to move ahead. Those who know about and marvel at Jesus can still reject him resulting in the dishonoring, the suppressing, and the astonishment of Christ. 
Friends, the power to overcome this persistent unbelief is not our own efforts to will up, to try to drum up our own faith. All right? But in the grace God gives through Christ, as it says in Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, the grace to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. May we all, like the father of the boy with the unclean spirit, cry out to God, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that at times we look at these people in the Bible and think that we are somehow unrelated to them. We can sort of marvel at their unbelief, but turn a blind eye to the unbelief that plagues our own hearts. God, I pray that that we never be content in resting in the past, in what we know about Jesus or about those experiences where we have marveled in Jesus in the past, but we could forget what lies behind and focus on the upward call of Christ Jesus, that we would that we would in no way dishonor you or suppress your truth and astonish and amaze you by our unbelief. God, I pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we thank you that Ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't depend upon us. It's not about on what we do, but what Christ has done. I pray that we would be struck by how much we need Jesus. And that as we continue to live dependently upon Him, ever looking to Him, giving glory to His name, then, then we can walk in obedience. And that the right, righteousness that has been declared in our lives actually becomes our own. I pray for those here who have not truly put their faith in Christ that they would. And I pray for those others who have that they would not settle. But they would grow in belief. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.